You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DNB Supply Show. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, and so happy to have you back again this week. Well, here we are. It's April. We are into spring, and it's an exciting time. Things are turning green, things are starting to grow, things are starting to bloom. And uh, it is time to get to work, everybody. So we are going to do an episode today devoted specifically to that. Our first guest today, and we're going to have two, is a gentleman named Chris Sabaris, and he is the Digital Marketing and Communications Manager for Corona Tools. And we are going to be talking all about gardening equipment, tools, what to use, how to do a few different gardening practices effectively and efficiently, even ergonomics and things like that when it comes to gardening tools, stuff that you've probably never thought about. I know that I had never thought about until I had the opportunity to speak with Chris. And then right after we speak with Chris, we're having Melinda Stafford on again to talk all about beekeeping. And if you remember Melinda from previous episodes, uh, she is the president of the Treasure Valley Beekeepers Association and the advisor for the Boise State University Beekeepers Club. And she's got a wealth of information on what we need to be doing with our bees as we get going here in the spring. So we've got a great episode for you to help you be successful with this year's lawn, garden, and beekeeping season. We hope you enjoy it, and thank you all so much for tuning in. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, um, thanks for having me on. This is great. You bet. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. You know, it's an exciting time of the year when people start getting out into their yards and into their gardens and and getting back outside and getting to work on those things and their projects for the year. And I imagine it's a busy time for you. It absolutely is. Well, let's uh, let's do this. I like to start off by just asking our guests if they might introduce themselves to our listeners. Can you tell us just a little bit about you and uh, what you do for, for Corona and how you came to be with Corona Tools? Sure. Uh, I actually came to Corona Tools in 2010, so... Um, this is my eighth year here, and I, I came via social media, believe it or not. It was, that was when social media was really starting to take off, and companies knew they needed to participate in it and really be active on it. So I was uh, grateful that Corona had created a new position for doing this, and I helped them really develop a strategy and get a way how to engage with their audience, which they hadn't really had an ability to do in the past. So uh, since then, it's just more things have been added on than, you know, I, in, in addition to the social media aspects. So uh, do that as well as some traditional media uh, marketing things here as, as well at Corona. Now, I was I was looking at your website and it was pretty interesting. Obviously, you well, I shouldn't say obviously, but you have your 90th anniversary coming up this year and it all started off with a uh, with kind of a revolutionary tool. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. That was our original orange shear, which we still make today. And what that tool was designed to do, it was actually developed by a a teacher who was a blacksmith. And they were trying to figure out how to harvest the oranges better so that they could harvest them and ship them back to the East Coast. This was the problem that they were having is that they would either you know, rip off the stem and it would poke into the fruit next to it. And by the time it got to the East Coast, it was already rotten and they couldn't sell it for, you know, full market price. Mm -hmm. Whereas once this tool came out, they were able to harvest it. It had a nice clean cut and it helped preserve the fruit so that when it made it to the East Coast, they could sell it for, you know, top price. And it really helped gain momentum in, in what California refers to as our second gold rush, which was the citrus industry. So that it really helped that, that one tool really helped that industry flourish. How interesting. So what was it about the tool and the design that made it, uh, that fixed this problem, I should say? 
Yeah, it's just the shape of the the tool itself. It was a, a like a bowl shaped tool, so they would not the the blades would not poke into the fruit and damage the the, the rind of the fruit. It also would because it was bowl shaped just cut it precisely at the right angle and i mean it just it was a well-designed well-thought-out tool well now along those same lines what makes a good garden tool i mean what is it that that corona specializes in that helps people get their job done better and more efficiently um there's actually a lot of research that goes into that corona will look at the different people who are using the tools you know what what are the challenges that they face do they have less dexterity in their hand or, or you know, they, they have less upper body strength. So they're going to need ways to make that easier. And, you know, to give you an example, like, you know, there's a tool that is the dual link, for example, that has a compound lever in it. And what that does is it amplifies the power of the, while you're making the cut and requires less physical work to make that cut. So, I mean, we certainly look at those kinds of things and give people tools that it's it's going to just make it easier with less work. Now, that probably goes along the same lines as ergonomics, a, a word I probably never heard until 15 years ago. But uh, is there is there ergonomic design uh, concepts incorporated into garden tools these days? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you don't have ergonomic tools, it, if if you're out there in the garden or you know doing any kind of work whatsoever with a tool that's not very ergonomic, your hand is really going to start to hurt. Uh, you can get you know just physical pains with whether it's in your wrist or in your forearms. So we take special you know cases that when we when we are you know studying these things to make sure that it fits the hand, that it's a nice comfortable fit that it's going to be comfortable when they're out in the garden, regardless of whether they're doing just a, a little bit of activity or spending hours out there. I mean, because it's going to cause a lot of physical challenges in your hands. So, I mean, you definitely want to have something that's comfortable and fits well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, along those same lines, is there anything designed that's gender specific? Like, there are, are there gardening tools that are developed that are specific, say, to women versus men? Uh, you know, we actually don't have tools that are specific to men and women. However, we do make different sizes and different cutting capacities. So if, you know, say like women who have smaller hands typically are not going to want to use a tool that has like a one inch cutting capacity because it's going to take a lot more effort to, you know, make that cut and and squeeze that uh, spring action. I mean, it's going to take a lot of effort to make that cut. Mm -hmm. Whereas the smaller tools that are designed for smaller hands, they don't cut as much. So maybe they'll have like a a half inch to a three quarter inch cutting capacity. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about that is, is that it doesn't overwork their hand. They're not going to feel that hand fatigue, and it's going to be a, a much better experience for them. So not, not necessarily gender specific, but we do have, you know, things that are made for different hand sizes, as well as, you know, we do even have some left and right handed. And I noticed as I was looking through your website, you've got tools that are, you can kind of dial them in, like the flex dial that adjusts the grip size to fit your different hand size. Yeah, that's actually a really innovative tool that we have introduced. It was in uh, 2016, so just a couple of years ago. But the nice thing about that is it's almost like a, a one-size-fits-all because you're able to dial in the exact size that fits your hand, but you can also dial it down to, say, like a, a number one, and that's going to open that tool at, at its most minimum point. And that's really going to be excellent for no matter what your hand size is for doing things like deadheading when you're making a lot of you know, smaller precision cuts, Mm -hmm. that will help it um, 
it only opens a little bit, so you you can just literally go through and make hundreds of cuts, and your hand's not going to be sore afterwards. Well, you know, it's fascinating to talk about. I mean, I think maybe sometimes we take things like gardening tools for granted, but really there's a lot of research and a lot of background, obviously 90 years of research and development and improvement going on by Corona. There's a lot that goes into development of these tools. I'll tell you what, let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, I've got more questions for you about this. That sound okay? Sure. You already know that Honda makes some of the most reliable, fuel-efficient cars on the planet, but that's just as true for Honda lawnmowers. The best thing about a Honda mower is it's a Honda, which means exclusive features like the 4-in-1 twin-blade cutting system that results in finer clippings for either bagging or when mulching, actually feeding your lawn with important nutrients. And it also means a highly fuel-efficient engine that's easier on the environment while you're sprucing up your environment. Plus, depending on the model, Honda residential mowers come with either a 3- or 5-year limited warranty. Shop Honda at select D&B supply stores and Eastern Oregon and Southern Idaho. D&B knows that life in the West is defined by hard work, innovation, and constant improvement. These values made the West what it is today, and these are the values that have made Wrangler the defining Western brand since 1947. Wrangler apparel is designed to feel good in the saddle, look sharp at the rodeo, and work hard on the ranch. That's why Wrangler fits with classic Western heritage like a boot in a stirrup. For clothing that's a good value and steeped in Western values, stock up on Wrangler at your favorite D&B supply well chris let's talk about some of the some of the things that we do in the garden this time of year you know i'd love to start off by talking about mulching it's something that i think is kind of an art form and i don't know much about it and and i understand that you do here's what i can tell you from experience mulching is like one of the best things if not the top thing that you can do in your garden one Putting out a, a good layer of mulch, especially in the spring, is going to help it retain its moisture. So when you're you know, running into those hot summer months and you have a good layer of mulch down, it's going to help those plants retain the moisture underneath the, the mulch because it gives it a nice protective layer. And you want to use like maybe two to three inches of mulch. Keep it away from the base of the plant itself because that can actually cause some damage in terms of, you know, pests can get in there. And so you just you want to make sure that it, it, you keep it back from the, the base of the plant. But aside from that, mulch is going to help keep weeds down. It's going to help keep the moisture throughout the summer. And I mean, it just, it's, well, also once it breaks down, if you use organic mulch or, mm-hmm. or something like bark or something like that, it's going to break down over time and that's going to go back into the soil and help replenish the, the nutrients in the soil. You know, along those lines, what do you recommend in terms of material to use as mulch? I always use just something like a bark mulch, something along that line. I mean, you can always find that in any garden center. There's also a lot of, through the county extensions and those kinds of things that ha- that you can go, you can get a just a truckload of mulch for next to nothing. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great ways to get some good natural mulch. Now, uh, let's talk about irrigation really quick. So, uh, for example, uh, Corona develops a lot of trenching tools, and I would assume that's to help to put in irrigation systems, among other things. But uh, let's talk about irrigation and, and what you see as the best practices. We're in Southern California, so, I mean, one of the things that we're always trying to do is, you know, how, how do we get through a really hot and dry summer? I mean, our... our Summers here are typically five months of you know close to 100 degree temperatures. So I mean we're very uh, conscious of, of water and not wasting it. So something like a, a spray system is really not very efficient for this type of environment or mm-hmm. this climate. So we're we're often using a drip irrigation system, which is far more efficient. So I mean that that works well. And then if you, of course if you're talking about a lawn, I mean drip it doesn't work for that. So an overhead system with efficient sprinklers, those kinds of things, are 
ideal for getting through any <laughs> throughout the season, regardless of what the climate is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're up here where we're at in eastern Oregon and southwestern Idaho. We're not quite as hot as you, but uh, we definitely have low humidity. And so we face those same challenges with uh, being efficient with our water, too. Yeah, and there's a lot of things, including not only the system that you put in, but, you know, how often you're watering and, and you know, what time of day you're watering. And it's going to a system is going to be most efficient in that very early morning. My system always comes on just before sunrise. And the reason for that is because it's cooler and there's less wind. So the water is going to it's going to give the water time to seep down into the ground as opposed to if you do it in the the heat of the day or late in the afternoon, it's either going to be so hot that the majority of it's going to evaporate before it even hits the grass, or it's going to blow away if you've got the you know evening winds, those kinds of things. Yeah. So it's good to pay attention to when you're actually watering as well. Now, obviously, Corona started off with a pruning tool or a cutting tool. Uh, now your line of, of pruning and cutting tools is just really impressive. Let's talk about different uses for pruning. Like when should we use shears as opposed to a saw and how should we choose and things like that? Yeah, there's there's a really, <laughs> I like to call it a one, two, three method. If you're going to cut something that's less than an inch, I recommend using a bypass hand pruner. And it also depends on the type of material that you're cutting. So if you're going to be cutting fresh green live stems, then you'll want to use a bypass pruner. And the reason for that is it's it's more like uh, using scissors. So you're going to get a nice clean cut when you're done. That's going to help it prevent you know, further disease or pests getting in there mm-hmm. and help it heal faster. So it's going to be a better cut. If you're doing things like cutting branches that are dead wood, so you've got you know a branch that died off last season and now you need to cut that out of there, you're going to want to use an anvil type hand pruner. And you, th- these are not interchangeable. You literally need to figure out what kind of material you're cutting and you're going to get the best cut if you use the right specific tool. Okay. So then anything, and that same principle applies to anything between one inch to two inch where I would highly recommend a lop, using a lopper. And that's going to give you more uh, leverage to make a, a larger cut because you're going to have longer handles. You're going to be able to get your arms out further apart and you know, it's going to make a nice cut. One thing that I will tell you to help make that easier is that you want to have the branch as close as possible to the pivot point, which is where the bolt is, you know, that connects the, the blade with the hook. Mm-hmm. That's where it's, all the power is. And if you try and cut with the branch up at the tip of the blade, it's going to take so much effort to make that cut. Put it all the way in as far as you can, and that's going to help make that cut a lot easier. And then so anything for the number three, I like to think if it's, you know, anything beyond two inches to three inches, use a handsaw. Those are just so much, they're designed to work very well for that type of trimming and cutting. If it's a branch that's really thick, it's going to take you a lot to try and power through that with a lopper. So much easier and so much quicker to use a just a pruning saw. Now, when you say bypass, you're talking about two blades that bypass each other. They go past each other, right? Kind of like scissors? Yeah, it's actually one is a cutting blade. The other one is the hook, which is a non-cutting blade. Okay. So the cutting blade passes by the hook much like a pair of scissors does. I mean, it's just one blade passing another one. Mm-hmm. So that that's where it's going to make that nice clean cut where the anvil is just a, it's sharpened on both sides and it's literally a blade that comes down on a flat surface. So, and the reason why you don't want to use that on, on green live stems is because that action, that tool could actually crush the end of it. And when you crush the end of it, you, you know, that, that leaves it open to all kinds of pests and diseases that can get in there. You, you want the nice 
clean cut in order for that to heal. Now, when I was looking at your digging equipment, I saw something that I've never seen before, and I thought, wow, why hasn't anyone thought of this yet? Or at least, why haven't I seen this yet? But on some of your shovels, it looks like there's a little step in, like installed on the top of the blade where you would normally step on the blade, you step on a step. Am I seeing this correctly? Yeah, it's actually a, a rubber foot pad, and that rubber foot pad is designed to, one, give you some more leverage so that you have a nice uh, wider step to step on when you're you know, pushing it into the ground. Mm-hmm. And then as well, because it's rubber, it's going to save the bottom of your shoe, and you know, as opposed to getting ripped up and, and torn. And it's actually better for your foot and your, your arch if you're not just stepping directly onto metal, it, it is padded and it helps make that uh, a lot easier to dig and it's going to be much more comfortable. Now, I saw an interesting tool on here as well that I've never seen before and it was called a McLeod hoe and it was really interesting looking. What is that used for? That is an interesting looking tool and I don't think actually most gardeners would end up using that. It's specifically for firefighters and while I've never used it, I know if you, you know, if you see fire coverage of people out there in the hills trying to knock knock fires down. That's exactly what that tool is used for. You will see them carrying that. And I don't know if it's just that it's wider or the, the way the tines are that it helps clear uh, vegetation out of there. But uh, we definitely know that that's a tool that is primarily for firefighters. Well, that's kind of cool that you guys make stuff for public safety and wildland firefighting as well. I mean, that's certainly something we need in the West. Yeah, absolutely. Last one I saw that I was interested in, I don't know if you noticed, I'm asking you selfish questions now, stuff that uh, I'm looking at going, oh, that looks cool, I want that. But uh, I saw one that was called a one-prong cultivator. What was that one? Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting tool. It's, got a, uh, it's like a standard cultivator with the exception of it's got one prong. And at the end of that prong, it's got a fork tip. So kind of like a, if, if you think of a snake with the, a snake's tongue that is forked, mm-hmm. what that is designed to do is to get down into, specifically if you have like a taproot where a dandelion, where the uh, center root grows down far into the soil, and you need to get that whole root out in order to, so it, so it doesn't grow back. That tool is designed specifically to just dig down in there, get that weed by the root, and just pull that out. And it won't disturb the other plants around it. So if you're doing that in a garden, vegetable bed, that kind of stuff, it's like you will get the the weed out without disturbing the rest of your plants. Well, it looked cool. I'm probably going to have to invest in that myself. Chris, <laughs> this has been great. What else do we need to know about gardening tools, about gardening in general? I mean, we're just kicking off the season, and uh, what else should we know? You know, I would absolutely say if anybody is looking for some really good resources and or some tips, we've got some on our, our website, which is on coronatoolsusa.com. On the, in the resources section, there are two guides. One of the guides is called Principles of Planting. The other one is the Principles of Pruning. And there is just a wealth of information. You can either get the electronic version and just go on our site and download that, or you can send a request in and they will actually mail out a hard book for you. But just tons of great information about pruning, best time to plant, uh, specific things about roses and rose pruning. So, I mean, just a ton of great information. And that book has been actually in publication since about uh, mid-70s, as far as I can recall. But uh, we just did a, a good refresh of that to get some good current information in there as well. Thank you so much, Chris. We really do appreciate all the advice and all the information. And uh, happy gardening season to you. You bet, Matt. And same to you. All right, everybody. We will be right back. And when we come back, we will have Melinda Stafford talking all about getting your bees ready for 
this season. During calving season, your livestock operation really comes alive. On your ranch, be born ready with Powder River Livestock Handling Equipment, available at DMB Supply. For almost 80 years, Powder River has stood out as leaders in the livestock handling field. With continuous equipment innovation to help ranchers work up close with their livestock safely and with minimal stress. To bring your calves into the world, then bring them upright. Stop on by select DMB Supply stores for Powder River Livestock handling equipment make quick work of your yard work with a little help from dnb supply because here you can pick up steel power tools legendary for getting the job done fast here's one power player that'll really blow you away or at least it'll blow those pesky leaves away the steel bg56 ce handheld blower it's powerful lightweight and easy to start plus it's a real steel at the everyday low price of just 179.95 get it all done in one blow and grab a steel at your favorite dnb melinda welcome back to the show thank you so much for coming back on Thanks for having me. Hey, you bet. You know, it's it's so important to uh, give people refreshers when it comes to, to taking care of bees. So I, I think what I'd like to start off doing is just have you, if you would, just reintroduce yourself to our listening audience so they know who they're talking to and kind of what you know about, and then we'll go from there. Awesome. My name is Melinda Jean Stafford. My day job is I work at Boise State as an event planner, but I serve as the volunteer advisor for the Boise State Bee Team, which is the campus beekeeping club, and they manage some hives on the roof of the Student Union Building. And I also serve as the current Treasure Valley Beekeepers Club president, and we host a lot of uh, meetings and events and educational opportunities for the community to get involved in beekeeping. Okay, well, you've been an invaluable resource to us so many times talking about bees and beekeeping, but here we are, we're, we're into another spring already, if you can believe that. So let's talk about what people need to be doing uh, here in the early spring and then later in the spring, either with new bees if they want to start out fresh or with what they've already got. Sure. So the, the answer to those questions is different depending on if you're starting from scratch or if you have hives that have survived winter. The process in the spring looks very different between the two. So I guess for folks that are starting off with bees for the very first time, April and May is going to be the time that new beekeepers are going to be installing bees into their new homes. So uh, hopefully beekeepers already purchased bees because I think in most cases people have sold out of their options. There might still be a few folks that are still selling, but in general, getting on those lists early is key. But um, beekeepers can pick up what are called packages or nucleus hives. I think nucleus hives are a little bit easier because they're, they're frames of bees that or you have a queen who's laying eggs. And so all you have to do is take those frames and put them into your box that you have at home and put some empty frames on the sides and then put a lid on it and you're ready to go. So that's the process for installing the nucleus hive. For the package of bees, it's really just a box of bees that you dump into a hive. Um, there's a few more steps in that, and there's some videos on DMB's YouTube page that you can see the full process for that. But April and May is going to be when new beekeepers are really getting their hives going. So outside of installing bees, new beekeepers really need to make sure that they're feeding bees with a sugar substitute. So in April and May, you've probably noticed that 
some plants are starting to bloom, but resources are still limited. And that is a time period when the bees really need a lot of resources to be able to get their hive um, up and going as quick as possible. They use nectar, or in this case, a substitute of nectar, which is sugar water, to draw out the comb and build the beeswax on the frame so that they have furniture in their house, essentially. If you were to walk into an empty house and have no furniture, the bees would have nowhere to to store anything, mm-hmm. uh, to, to put stuff. So the honeycomb, which they make from the nectar, is where they store honey and pollen, and it's where the queen lays eggs. So without that beeswax, she can't do anything. So giving them sugar syrup is a great way to help the hive build up quickly. Um, and the way to do that is mix uh, one part sugar to one part water. And what I usually do is I just take a old milk jug and fill it halfway with sugar and then fill it all the way to the top with hot water, shake it up till it dissolves. Mm-hmm. And then I, I put that into the hive in a feeder frame. So those are the two key things for brand new beekeepers. All right, Melinda. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I've got to ask you about something I've read about called a pollen patty. Know when they say good fences make good neighbors? When you've got Balin Country gates and panels to really fence your livestock in. Also, when you let your neighbor in on the great deals you can find on Balin Country at DNB. Made from steel and designed for stamina, Balin Country gates and panels are tested to match up to robust ranch life. So instead of mending all those fences, round up a whole new one with Balin Country at DNB Supply. This is Bill's yard, and Bill's a grill master, not a grass expert. Still, he won't let weeds invade his backyard barbecue kingdom. And with Scott's Turf Builder Weed and Feed, Bill can clear out weeds, green up his lawn, and hold his spatula high. Because Scott's Weed Grip Formula is twice as effective on dandelions as it used to be. This is a Scott's Yard. Pick up Scott's Weed and Feed today. All right, Melinda. So the question that I had before the break is I've read something about pollen patties. Yeah, so pollen patties are much like sugar syrup, which is a substitute for nectar, pollen patties is a substitute for pollen. So much like the nectar, there's not a ton of resources available in early April for bees to forage from. So providing them a pollen patty is a great way to substitute that. Now, Sugar syrup is what bees use, or nectar or sugar syrup is what bees use to create the beeswax in their um, colonies. And also natural nectar is what they use to then turn into honey. But pollen is their resource for protein. And so giving a new hive a pollen patty will help them rear brood more quickly. So it'll help the colony to create new bees at a higher pace because they need protein to help create bee bread, which is what they feed new baby bees so that they can develop well. Uh, So giving a hive pollen patties is a good way to do that. Now, some beekeepers, this is where things can get, you can get a little strategic. I have one hive, for example, coming out of winter that's really strong and one hive that's a little bit more weak, just by numbers mostly. Mm -hmm. And so I will probably be feeding the hive with less bees, some pollen patties, but I may not feed that hive with a lot of bees pollen patties as early because they already have a really high population. 
So to kind of equalize things and to bolster up my high less bees, I will feed them a pollen patty here soon to help them get their population up. Now, you, you mentioned you've got one that's stronger than the other. When you go to look at your hives as they're coming out of winter, how do you assess what's going on with them? Like if you have some dead bees or something like that, how do you figure out what's going on? Yeah, so it's a little challenging this time of year because you can't really do a full hive inspection, right? It's a little too cold to be diving into your hives and pulling frames out. So for the most part, I'm assessing the health of my hives in a couple of ways. I'll go out to them and just look at their entrance and see how many dead bees have piled up on the bottom board and also just out the entrance of the hive. Seeing dead bees is totally normal because bees just don't live forever. And Mm so a hive, to stay hygienic, will kick the dead bees out the front door so that they're not in the hive. So seeing some dead bees, even in what seems like large amounts, can be okay. But the nice thing about having multiple hives is you can compare, oh, this hive has tons of dead bees, and this one doesn't have very many. And so that might tell you, okay, the hive with a lot more dead bees, there might be something going on there that I need to check out once it is warm enough. Okay. So the other way that I assess how the hive is doing is I have been feeding my hives what are called candy boards, which is an emergency food source during the winter because my hive that has a lot of bees, they're eating through their honey stores really quickly. So I had to add some extra food on top of them uh, to give them enough food to get through winter. And so by opening the hives, just the lids, I've been able to see, assess briefly how many bees are inside because I can just peer down into it. Um, and tell. And so I've been able to see that one has a lot more bees than the other. So I know that both of them are alive, which is great. I know that one has a lot more bees than the other, but because I haven't had good enough weather yet to inspect them, I haven't been able to assess entirely why that's the case. But generally, the rule of thumb is one queen is doing better than the other. And uh, that can usually Queens are are the mother of all the bees in the hive, so if one's doing really well, the hive will overall be better off than others. Now, you mentioned it being too cool for a full hive inspection. What temperatures do we want to see before we do a full hive inspection and open that all up? Yeah, so it kind of depends on a few factors, but if it's really sunny and not very windy, you could do a hive inspection when it's above 60 degrees. If it's, you know, 65, but it's really windy and not very sunny, then that's probably not going to be ideal. So you want a day that's above 60, a day that's not very windy, and a day that's pretty sunny. And this time of year, we get those days here and there, right? It's not consistent. So you have to really plan hive inspections around that. Mm -hmm. I'm not too concerned with beekeepers diving into their hives right now. It's okay to wait a little bit longer to go do a full inspection, but it is okay on a day, even just in the 50s, to put your veil on and just peek in the lid to see what's going on. Uh, You just don't want to be tearing through frames when it's below 60 degrees, or you risk exposing the bees to too cold of temperatures, and then they have to recluster together, and that can add a lot of stress onto them. All right, well, let's take a break, and when we come back, let's talk about what to do later in spring, you know, into into May and that time of the the year, if Mm -hmm. that's all right. Sounds good. Spring is already in the air at D&B Supply because we've got DeWalt blowers and trimmers on hand to get you ready for the road or yard ahead. Power through your outdoor spring cleaning with DeWalt's FlexBolt 60-volt max handheld blower or string trimmer. With a super-powered, lightweight lithium-ion battery, they're designed to take charge of tough overgrowth and heavy-duty chores. It's ready, set, blow when you spring into action with your DeWalt blower or trimmer at D&B Now. 
At DMB Supply, we don't let anything bog us down because we have Bog Boots, the ultimate footwear for working outside in any weather. Bogs are made to face the elements no matter what. Mud? No problem. Snow? Plow right through. Water? Make a splash. They'll keep your feet warm and dry in any season, anywhere you want to wander. With styles and sizes for every job and everyone in your family, pick up a pair of Bog Boots. Available now at your favorite D&B. Well, Melinda, let's talk about late spring now. Uh, if we're going to break spring into kind of two different parts, what should people do be doing when it gets warmer and later into the spring? Sure. So later into the spring, what I'm referring to by that is, um, you know, getting into like late April um, to May time frame. Actually, really just April to May. That when beekeepers particularly second-year beekeepers, have to be concerned about swarming. And what swarming is, is it's the way that bees genetically survive. They take one colony and they split it in two, two into four, four into eight, and so on. And so a colony that is strong, that has lots of bees, is reproducing quickly, what will happen is the the existing queen will gather with a about half the bees in the hive, and they'll take off and they'll find a new home, leaving behind about half the bees and a new queen who maybe hasn't been born yet, but is probably close. So the bees that took off, that is called a swarm. And what they'll do is they'll generally find a holding location, usually on a tree branch or under the awning of a building, something like that. And then they'll send out scouts to go find a more permanent home. Sometimes that is in like a hole inside of a tree. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's in places people don't want them, like cracks in a building. And then they'll find a new home between walls, which is not great. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for beekeepers to try to prevent swarms for that reason, but also because you just lost half your bees. And that's not what beekeepers want. It's also, despite the fact that swarms are actually very docile, they're not aggressive at that point because they're not protecting any resources. But swarms often do scare people because they see this bundle of bees and they panic and think it's dangerous. So that's another reason that beekeepers should be preventing swarms. So that's something that second year and older beekeepers have to really be thinking about in um, April and May. Although swarms have happened in late March in our area before, although that's less common. Now the way to prevent swarms That's a little bit more complicated because there's so many different strategies. This is where I think beekeepers really nerd out and have a lot of fun with how to manipulate a hive in such a way that they can prevent those swarms from happening. A couple of the more simple methods are is to split them yourself, which is sort of artificially swarming them. So you can take the old queen and a few frames of brood and put it into a new hive or a nucleus box that's smaller. And that will usually prevent the queen from wanting to swarm because she just lost a ton of her the bees in her colony. And so she's less apt to want to take off. Mm -hmm. Then the remaining hive will create a new queen or maybe you already identified that they were creating queen, which tells you they're probably going to swarm. And so you pull the old queen out before it happens. That's probably the most simple method for preventing swarms. There's a lot of other pieces that go into that, which we could talk about if you want, but it could be pretty lengthy. Well, I think what we wanted was just kind of a refresher to help everybody get started into the season and, and have the mm-hmm. most successful 
B year they could have as we get uh, out of spring and into summer. So thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing all that with us again, Melinda. Really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us today. And here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the D&B Show, I'm Matt Breckwald.